We're going to read an interesting passage this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there to Zechariah 11. If not, uh, it's printed for you in your bulletins. But I'd like to uh, begin by asking you a question. What What do you think about when you consider the condition of our world... And, and even consider the condition of the church in the world. What do, you, what do you think about when you consider, when you watch the news, when you go through your social media and certain things pop up? I think it's fair to say that you could, you could say there's a lot of uncertainty in the world today. You could describe some of it as angry. Definitely misunderstanding. It's thinking that, that when I tell someone that I am a Christian, we don't always seem to be thinking the same thing, whoever it is that I'm speaking to. When I think Christian, I think of God's grace to a sinner. A person who, in, in spite of who he or, or she is, God comes through the the proclamation of the word, whether that be reading or teaching or preaching. God comes through the proclamation of the gospel by his spirit, convinces convinces us of our, our need, our misery, our sin. Opens up our minds so that we can understand what God has done in Christ to deliver us from that situation. To free me from myself. And then even as, as Dan said, to, to slowly, the, the continuation of understanding the, the gospel of what it means to be a Christian, slowly over time, God still works showing me how, how self-centered I can be, how, how selfish sometimes I can be, how hard it is to be good. And when I'm thinking correctly, as I... As I speak about being a Christian, when I'm thinking correctly, I am humbled and yet joyful all at the same time. Now, when I'm speaking to another person, they don't, most of the time, think in those terms. What they think is often vastly different. What the world thinks of a Christian, at least the way it's portrayed in, in, uh, in the news... Portrayed on the streets even of Athens, most often when I tell somebody I'm a Christian, they can think I'm closed-minded. They can think that I am self-righteous. Oftentimes when I I speak to a woman about my Christianity, they immediately think that I'm, I'm a sexist. That I don't believe that God has created a woman in in with dignity, equal value. As a man, most people don't think that, or, or most people think that I, I despise homosexuals. Most people think that I look down upon people that are not Christians. And to be fair, we have, we have to be fair here. To be fair, I, I have met some people who claim to be Christians that are more like that than not. Right? So if that's what they think of Christians oftentimes, what do you think about what they believe we do in church on Sunday morning? 
They probably don't think much of what we do here, and it can be very frustrating, can it? As I was studying for this sermon in Zechariah 11, I was reminded that that Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer long ago, said that much of the misunderstanding in, in the world about Christianity, even among religious people, Uh, is due to what he referred to as the way of glory versus the way of the cross. Looking at life from different perspectives. Looking at life from a way of glory, a way of man, a way of the world versus looking at life through the way of the cross. The way of the cross for Martin Luther is a picture of Christianity, of true Christianity, and therefore of Christians. The way of glory is a perversion of Christianity. And therefore, at best, somebody that may or may not be a Christian who believes in the way of of glory, it will be a, a perverted Christianity that they're living. Let me say it like this. If you're a, a theologian or a, a believer in the way of glory then you believe that God is working in the world only through what is seen, what is visible. Even the good things, like our goodness, the the way of glory is taking man's goodness and applying it to God as if if God's goodness is just an outgrowth of our goodness. The way of glory is defined in terms of what we see of what we experience. This way of viewing life, according to Martin Luther, leads to pride, self-righteousness, and hard hearts. The way of the cross, on the other hand, for Martin Luther, is we engage, or people who live in the way of the cross, will engage the visible things of the world through the lens of how God has revealed himself to us, and only that way. And realize Martin Luther had a very limited view of how God revealed himself to us. It was simply God revealing himself on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, the way of glory, because man is defining reality in terms of himself and what he wants, the way of glory, you end up calling evil good and good evil. The way of the cross, you call it what it actually is. See, for our purposes today, and the reason that I explained all that at the very beginning is because when we read Zechariah 11, you're going to go, oh no, woe is me. It's, it's, it's like I was wishing I could skip over it. That's the way you'll feel if you look at it from man's perspective. That's the way you will feel if you simply see man at the center of the universe. The way of the cross, as we read this passage, is living light, living life in light of the rejected shepherd. So let's look at it this way. The way of glory, as we read this passage, is ignoring the rejected shepherd. The way of the cross is living life in light of the rejected shepherd. So let's look at Zechariah 11. It's printed for you in your bulletins. This is God, at at, at the beginning here, God is speaking 
to the prophet Zechariah. We're going to begin in verse 4. Thus said the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished, and those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, I have become rich, and their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor, each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. And here Zechariah picks up and he says, So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed three shepherds, but I became impatient with them and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed, and let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. And then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff, union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And then the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed does not seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hoofs. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye, and let his arm be wholly withered and his right eye utterly blinded. There you go. The way of glory looks at this text and says, doom. The way of the cross looks through this text and sees the rejected shepherd that Zechariah is pointing us to, and we see life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a a hard passage. In many ways, it's a sad passage. And yet the good news is you've never been a God to leave us to our own. You have always pursued us. You've always sent us a shepherd. You desire to be near your people, and we give you thanks. We give you thanks even as we read this hard passage. We ask that you would soften our hearts, that you'd open up our eyes, that you'd unplug our ears, that that we would meet with you this morning, that we would see the beauty of our salvation the power of the work of Jesus on our behalf, that we would be renewed. If anyone is here who does not know you, Father, I pray, I pray that you would touch their hearts, that they would see the beauty and the majesty of the rejected shepherd who at one time was nailed up on a cross only to be raised again to new life, and in him we have life. Help us to see that this morning. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this morning, we're just going to... Hard for me to do points. You know how, how you like points one, two, and three. I, it's hard for me to do points on narrative portions of the Bible. But I want you to be able to follow me, so I, I broke it down into three different sections. The first section is the situation. What's going on in, in Zechariah 11? That's the situation. The second section will be, I want you to see the shepherd. The shepherd that God sends, particularly Zechariah. And then lastly, I want us to look through the, the shepherd Zechariah and I want us to see what God would have us th- see as we look through the shepherd of Zechariah. So first, verses 4 through 6, the situation. God tells Zechariah to become the shepherd of the sheep who is God's people who also happen to be doomed to slaughter. God loves his flock so much that he is not happy with the sheep. He's not happy with the shepherds. The reason why he's not happy with the sheep and the shepherds, primarily because the shepherds are supposed to be caring for the sheep, but instead they're exploiting them for their own selfish reasons. Passage speaks to two different types of of leaders. There's the merchants those who are buying and selling, and then there is the, uh, the, the, their own shepherds, the merchants. They buy and they sell, and then they say, blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. It's not God has made me rich. It's I have become rich. In fact, defining the idea of richness according to what they believe is rich as opposed to what God says is rich. Blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. And then you have the, those, those, their own shepherds who take no pity, no compassion, no love. They're probably city officials, which in that time were religious officials as well. They're supposed to be caring for the flock. Instead, they're lining their own pockets, seeking their own good. Both of the groups, the merchants and the city leaders, they've redefined God in their own image. They've redefined what it is to have the good life according to what they think is the good life. And you have to ask yourself this question, how did they get to where they are in Zechariah 11? Because if you remember the first six chapters of Zechariah, they were pretty powerful. You remember the visions, the night visions, these apocalyptic visions, these these majestic, glorious ideas of all that God was going to do for his people. He was at work behind the scenes, putting back together everything that was broken. He was going to dwell with his people. We refer to it as glory in our midst. God loves his people so much that he wants to be near them. If he's going to be near them, he has to bring peace. He has to bring righteousness. And he does it not through might, not through strength, but he does it through his spirit. After that, we learned in those visions that God was going to deal with sin and evil and injustice and remove it from the land. And ultimately, he would bring victory. God's people would be victorious because God is victorious. These visions were glory. They were mighty. They were powerful. They were encouraging. They were uplifting. They worked. Because he got the people back to work again. They built the temple. They finished it. Everything worked out. 
in some measure. What happens when things start going well, when we're left to our own? When we look at God's blessings and interpret them from our perspective as opposed to his perspective, we start coasting, don't we? That's what they did. They started coasting. The temple had been finished. They were coming. Everything was coming together. The temptation was to say, hey, we got this. Things are good. We can do it. They forget that all they have and all they are is because of God. And we, when we forget that everything that we have is a gift from God, we begin to focus back in on ourselves. We try to make God a little bit more palatable, a little bit less demanding. And we say things like, ah, bless the Lord, I have become rich. It's a way of glory. Passage says it leads to falling into the hands of our neighbors, each one into the hand of his king. The land ends up being crushed, and God leaves us to our own. That's what's happened here in Zechariah 11. Gave lip service to God, all the while being proud, self-righteous, and self-serving. I did have to stop and think when I was preparing this sermon. I wonder if I've ever given that type of impression to a non-Christian about what a Christian is. Started believing that they deserved God's grace. They deserved the good life. They wanted the glory now. And they basically said, we'll do whatever we can do to get it. Even if that means trampling on the sheep. But look, what does God do? That's the situation. What does God do? He sends a shepherd. He sends Zechariah, verse 7. Here's the shepherd, Zechariah. He says, I have become the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered. Now, listen. We don't know if Zechariah actually acts out this role play where he becomes the shepherd or if it's simply symbolic to what Zechariah did over the course of his ministry. I mean, he could have actually done it. It wouldn't be the first time that a prophet engaged in this type of role play. Remember Hosea? God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute to show what it was like for God to be married to his people. And be real clear, the people were the prostitute. God told Isaiah to go around without clothes and barefoot for three years to symbolize judgment. Ezekiel had to lay on his side. I, I couldn't remember how long he had to lay on his side to symbolize Israel's sin. Zechariah could have actually done this, but it really doesn't matter. What matters is that Zechariah brings two staffs, and whether or not they are literal staffs, it really doesn't matter. What he brings is God's shepherd. He brings two staffs, one called favor and one called union. Favor signifies God's blessing on his people. Union, another word, is bonds or cords. It, it signifies being tied together with a body of other people because we can't do this by ourselves. This favor and this union together, it's, it's life in the world, life in community with God's blessings. It's everything they needed to live to experience life. That's what the shepherd brings, Zechariah. 
It's no surprise that the leaders didn't like the good shepherd, right? They were the ones that were responsible or the most responsible for going their own way. It's not, it's, it's not particularly surprising that the shepherds didn't like Zechariah because he says in one month he destroys three of them. We don't know who they are exactly, but we do know that they are leaders opposed to him. And it certainly explains why they didn't like Zechariah. But it wasn't simply the leaders. It was the people. The people approved of these bad shepherds. You wonder why until you think about this, if... If you have a community that redefines God into their own image, if, if a community is seeking the good things of God rather than God himself, you're going to want leaders to help, or at least leaders that you think are going to help. It's another picture of the way of glory, service to self, desiring God in terms of ourselves rather than in how he has revealed himself to us. The problem is when you reject the good shepherd that God sends, the good shepherd leaves you to yourself. And left to ourselves, the staff of God's favor is broken. That's what Zechariah does. He breaks the staff of God's favor. And later on, he breaks the second staff of union. And then he says, I will not be your shepherd anymore. Zechariah says, what is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed And let those who are left devour the other. Without a proper relationship with God through a good shepherd, in light of who he truly is, you can't enjoy his blessings. Because favor and union, these two staffs come ultimately from God himself. And if you don't want his shepherd, you don't want God. If you don't want God, you can't have his blessings. The problem is when we reject a good shepherd, we don't simply go without a shepherd. We get the shepherd that's more like us, which is the last part of your your passage. Look at the shepherd like the people. Verse 15, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I'm raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed. A shepherd who does not seek out the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh tearing off even their hooves. Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. See, Zechariah, do you know how painful this must have been for Zechariah? Think about it. He was rejected. He sees the people suffering. He sees them hurting themselves. He's he's following his God. He's doing what, what, what his God wants him to do. And yet we see the contempt poured out on him in verses 12 and 13. You see the contempt? Zechariah says, I won't be your shepherd anymore. Go ahead and pay me my wages. So they give him 30 pieces of silver. You know what 30 pieces of silver are? It's the Old Testament equivalent of the value for a slave. That's how highly they thought of God's shepherd. His response is even sarcastic. He says, Thank you for that lordly sum. In other words, they reject God's shepherd by paying him the wages of a servant. And God tells Zechariah, throw it to the potter and reject the payment. Do you realize 
And I didn't realize this until I started studying the passage in Matthew 23. You know what happens? Jesus tells us what happens to Zechariah. He's murdered in between the sanctuary and the altar. You see the shepherd that God sends? Let's look through that shepherd. Because Zechariah did all that he could. He simply couldn't do enough. Zechariah, as good as he was, he wasn't good enough to change the sheep who were doomed to slaughter. But realize this, even in Zechariah 11, God didn't intend Zechariah to do it. God intended Zechariah to point us to the other rejected shepherd. See, Zechariah ultimately points us to God who comes as a rejected shepherd because you know what? We don't need Zechariah. We need God himself. The same one who was also valued at 30 pieces of silver. It's a wage paid to Judas, Jesus' traitor the one who betrayed the ultimate good shepherd, who after doing so, he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. So we have to look through Zechariah here, through the visible things of Zechariah, and we see Jesus Christ as the ultimate innocent good shepherd who, like Zechariah, is rejected. But unlike Zechariah, who broke the staffs of God's favor and God's union, Jesus puts them back together again. Unlike Zechariah in his death, he doesn't desert the flock because he takes back his life. And in his life, we are given life. We are no longer the sheep doomed to be slaughtered. We are the sheep who is given abundant life through the great rejected shepherd, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I know my own and they know me. The sheep didn't know Zechariah. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also and they will listen to my voice. That's us. For this reason the Father loves me. Why does the Father love the rejected shepherd? Jesus says, because I lay down my life only to take it up again. And then he says this. You know what he says next? Jesus, the rejected shepherd, he says, I have come that they may have life and have life abundant. Life abundant is brought about by the rejected shepherd, Jesus Christ, and we are no longer doomed to slaughter. Zechariah's ministry, as good as it was in Zechariah 11, it was not good enough. He was faithful. He was faithful even to death, but he was simply a man. The only truly good shepherd was both God and man, and his faithfulness leads to death, which leads to life, and in him we are no longer doomed to slaughter. Abundant life comes not from devising our own ways of living or devising our own standards of what is rich and not rich, good and not good, but abundant life comes from from viewing life through the cross of the rejected shepherd, viewing life in light of God's sacrifice for us. Let me explain to you what this looks like. This is important. How does the world 
How does the way of glory look at power and authority? Leadership. This is about leadership here. Bad shepherds. How, how does the world look at power? Power, according to the world, is making sure things are done in accord with the person's will and desire. Right? He or she can be nice. They can be logical by talking sense. Or he or she can be angry and forceful. But either way, the essence of power, according to man, is using whatever it takes to do whatever he or she wants to get it. That's power. What does power look like from the cross? Power hidden in weakness and used for the ultimate well-being of the other. Power is still concerned with what's right, what's good, what's true, but it comes through self-sacrificial service. So power and authority is not used by throwing one's weight around. Power and authority is not about how many votes we can get or how many, or, or how many protesters we can have. Power from the cross comes by serving other people and it's hidden in weakness. You see how the world defines one thing in, in the Bible and God himself defines something else as you look through the lens of the crucified Savior who hangs on the cross for you and me? Let's look at another one. Life. This is a little easier. From the world's understanding, what is life? I, I thought about that bumper sticker. The one who dies with the most toys wins. That's life. Get all you can get for yourself right now. That's life. You know what life is from the cross? Life is devotion to something bigger than oneself. It's loyalty to God even if you die. You see the difference? Here's one that, that, that I think is, um, I got to kind of come up with this. Love. R Richard Pratt talked about this Friday night. So I'm stealing a little bit from Pr Richard Pratt. How does the world define love for, for all you married people, for all you unmarried people that want to be married, for all you high school people that think you know what love is? How does the world define love? Richard Pratt says, and I think he's right, whether it's Walt Disney or whether it's an R-rated movie, we define love as giving and receiving pleasure. I love you means I want to give you pleasure or you want to, and, 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 and I want you to give me pleasure. I love you. You hear it all the time, don't you? Oh, I love her. Love, from the world's perspective, goes to the pretty, to the sexy, to the cool, to those who are wanted. Love goes to those who are desired. Love goes to the one who can earn that love and deserves that love. What does love do from the cross? Love from the cross goes to the unlovely and the not deserving. To the ones who not only don't deserve it, but they can never repay it perfectly. Do you see the, how that would change the way we interacted with people if we had the right definition of love instead of the world's definition of love? Look how it's worked out in, in, in people's lives. Men, the Bible is really, really clear. We're called to be leaders. 
We kind of want to shy away from that, don't we? We soften those edges. But you know what it looks like to lead? According to the way of the cross, we don't lead loudly. We don't lead with might and force. We lead with a sacrificial love that often hurts, is inconvenient, and often very humbling. It means dying to our own desires so the well-being of other people come first. That's leadership. That's what the shepherds forgot. The shepherds were defining leadership just like the world defined leadership. Ladies, doesn't mean that you are the same as men. When, when you look at the way of the cross, the way of the cross says that you are of equal value, of equal meaning, with, with equal dignity. And I will even say this, if men are leading the way they're supposed to be leading, I want to say women have more dignity and value than men. You're a beloved daughter of the king, which, which means that you can be bold, which means that you can stand strong in how God has created you and how God has gifted you. Just because we are different doesn't mean there's less dignity. The way of the cross means that you are free and empowered to love and honor other people, even men. The way of the cross makes us love other people who are different for us. We, we still speak the truth with boldness and power, but we rest in the ultimate love that God has given us as we look at our crucified Savior dying on the cross for us. I, th- this is a sad text, but it is a powerful text, and it, is, and it is a joyful text because we're not left with Zechariah. We're left with a crucified Savior who changes doom into glory. And we are empowered to to live life with a view of the cross that that, that radically changes the way the world defines everything. Men can lead, women can submit, and it's not dishonorable and it's not sexist. It is honoring to God and it's full of power and it's full of beauty and it's full of majesty and it will blow the minds off of other people. It doesn't mean that we won't be rejected. It doesn't mean that we won't hurt. It doesn't mean that we won't even be misunderstood. But it does mean that we live in light of eternity. And living in light of eternity is abundant life. Let me conclude this way. If the cross of Christ... The cross of Christ, the most evil, unjust act in human history. If it can be in line with God's will and his good purposes to us, he is able to bring goodness in life from a wicked and evil world. A world filled with death and suffering and struggles. 
surely and most certainly whatever it is we are dealing with and whatever it is we are going through is made good through the cross of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we don't define the world in terms of the world. We don't define the church in terms of the world. We define the things in the world, whether it be power, whether it be love, whether it be life, whether it be riches, we define that in terms of the cross of the rejected Savior. And as we look to Him, it changes the way we view this life, enables us to be faithful, encourages us to endure even in light of misunderstandings and rejections, Because we know that in Jesus Christ we have abundant life. We're no longer doomed to slaughter. In Jesus Christ we've been given life and life abundant. And it's through his death that we live. I don't know what it is you're going through this morning. I don't know what you think of when you read Zechariah 11. But we are different now. We're different because of the blood of Christ that's forgiven us of our sins. We're different now because of the alien righteousness given to us. And even though it doesn't appear that way all the time, we have the the victory of God. All these things that Zechariah spoke about in the beginning of his his, uh, prophecy... They're coming true now. God, through Jesus, is putting things back together again in spite of the way it may appear. Have hope. God wants to dwell with his people so much that he took on flesh. He identified with them. He's forgiven them of their sins. And now we are brothers and sisters of the rejected shepherd. He's going to deal finally and completely with sin, evil, and wickedness, not only in the world, but in our hearts. And ultimately, we will experience final victory. But in the meantime, God has come and said, you no longer are doomed to slaughter. Live. Live sometimes rejected. Live sometimes misunderstood. But live. Because God loves you. And he cares for you. And he is for you. And he will never stop. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the God that is spirit, sometimes you seem far away. And yet in this passage, we see that you have come near. You've come near in the person of Jesus Christ. You've come near in in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. And you have not, he has not left us alone. He has not deserted us. He has sent us his spirit where we can experience all the blessings given to us. This favor and this union has been given to us in Christ Jesus and we can now experience it in the spirit. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. Work among us now. Help us to rejoice, for we are no longer doomed to slaughter, but we have been given life in life abundant. We praise you in the name of Jesus.
Amen.